we keep our routine, which is a big help. And I highly recommend this to people at home to keep a routine. Um, people in quarantine are reporting that they've been living in their pajamas for three days. Or if they're carrying on business or school through Zoom calls, they might dress nicely from the waist up with a pajama bottom on the, on, the, on the bottom that can't be seen. But in times of stress, to maintain a routine uh, is very helpful. And some people are writing out what their routine will be and even uh, putting in uh, time to watch Netflix in their routine, day routine. So we're, we continue to meditate morning and evening and to gather to chant four times a day. Practicing morning and evening is something I call bookending practice, like the bookends that hold the books upright and together on the shelf. Book, bookending practice can be a good way to hold yourself together during challenging times. Even if you only practice for five or 10 minutes in the morning or the evening, when you first get up, or as, you, as you're getting up, you can just sit up in bed and practice for 5, 10, 15 minutes. And then also before you, you go to bed, you can get dressed for bed if you're not still wearing your pajamas. And before you lie down, practice. And of course, there are many good practices to do at this time. Loving kindness practice, gratitude practice being top on the list. Bookending practice is very stabilizing and can help keep you from sliding down and off the shelf. I used to do it when I had a family and also was um, very active in medicine. And I had a, um, a book on the back of the toilet. That was the only private place I had during the day. So when I got up, I would read a little passage from the book, which would inspire me to practice. People often ask, what should I read? about Zen, and I say, read only things that practice, that inspire you to practice, especially when you begin. And then I would do the same thing in the evening before I went to bed. When I got ready for bed and I was sitting on the toilet, I would read uh, something inspiring about practice. In, med in medicine, there's another thing that happens in medicine. Nobody has time to read journals and the journals are covered with brown paper, usually when they come in the mail. This is the old days before online journals. And so people had stacks of unread journals on the back of their toilet. And um, so it was called reading the brown journal, which meant you never read it because you never took the cover off. But I encourage you to read uh, and practice twice a day. Do bookending practice if you can, as we do here at the monastery because it's a way of clearing out the day too, preparing for the day, preparing the heart, mind, and body for the day in the morning, and then in the evening, clearing out the day, letting go of everything we might be clinging to or worried about, and preparing for the next day, for sleep and the next day. So I've been talking on Sunday mornings about several themes. Uh, one is we practice in the good and the easy times to be ready for the difficult times. Another theme has been, this is normal. Master Shen Ying's response to anything that happens, this is normal. 
Last week I talked about wearing a face mask and self-quarantining are bodhisattva practices that protect others from becoming ill and ourselves. Um, I, I, when we were giving some masks to the ladies who are at the post office in Klatskanai, I told them about the theme from the Czech Republic, from Chechia. My mask protects you, your mask protects me. And one of the women at the post office said, we need a big button that says that. Also, the theme that was given to us during World War II by President Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And that the gift of Dharma is the gift of no fear. It's the most precious gift we can give. Enabling us to be compassionate and clear-minded as the pace of impermanence seems to speed up. You know, each of us has our area of concern in this time of pandemic. Um, My area of concern is not only the monastery, but because Hogan and I have um, five children and eight grandchildren, caring for them too, connecting with them and seeing what their needs are, both psychological needs, financial needs, material needs. And also for me, healthcare providers who are really struggling right now. Um, If you don't live in New York City, I suggest that you, and you don't live in Italy, I suggest that you look at least one video of healthcare providers in Italy and one video of healthcare providers in New York City. Because for those of us on the West Coast, what's happening what happened in Italy, and they tried to warn us in the U.S., and what's happening now in New York City is what is advancing across the country and will affect us. And healthcare workers are completely overwhelmed. Um, so I talk about, for the first time in their life, breaking down and crying on their shifts or at the end of their shifts, having nightmares at night. Um, one Italian woman nurse says, you know, I have never, everyone says, I have never encountered anything like this before in my life. And the kind of fear that arises in them. Uh, be, as one Italian nurse said, you know, I'm used to caring for people and most of them recover. And now they're all dying. And now they're all dying. So there's tremendous stress on our healthcare providers who are not adequately protected with the equipment they need. So these are some of the themes. This is normal. This is normal. But we weren't prepared for this. We weren't prepared for wearing a mask when we go outside, for washing our hands, for staying at home. All of these are bodhisattva acts. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And this is such a profound change in the world that the world will never be the same again. That's what a number of doctors are saying. This, this world, the world of medicine, will never be the same again. As it was not for survivors of World War I and World War II and other epidemics. Hogan and I had a good friend who uh, was raised in England, a wonderful woman whose name was Joy. And she uh, grew up, she said, in a world without men because World War I and World War II had 
wiped out most of the men. So there were a lot of old maids, she said. That was very, very common that women who could not find a partner would live at home the rest of their life and care for their elderly parents. So a world without men or a world without elderly people in Italy. You know, Italy prepared us for the elderly are the most vulnerable, and especially those with pre-existing conditions. But now, as this epidemic advances across Europe and the U.S., it's hitting young people, too. So things are constantly changing, and we have to stay with it. And the only way to stay with it is to keep our minds clear through practice. We have to detect narrow thinking and regressive acting and widen our view. We have to think big. We have to be generous. We have to stay curious. We have to practice loving kindness for ourselves and others. We have to keep asking Hogan's constant question, what have I learned today? We have to be prepared for death, death of people we love. We have to practice forbearance, knowing that this will be over, but we will be changed, hopefully for the better. We weren't prepared for this. This is normal, but somehow, especially those born after World War II, thought we could get through life without major problems. Most of us have lived in a world that promised freedom from childhood illnesses, thanks to vaccines. A life expectancy of at least 72 years. A comfortable home of our own. 2.5 children and a dog. Plenty to eat, good jobs, you know, just a few years ago, people were talking about, I have to find my ideal job. Now there are no jobs for so many people. And the expectation that we could find our soulmates. But what is happening now is normal. So, for example, quarantine. When I was in fifth grade, I saw houses with large paper signs pasted to the door by the public health department. The house was quarantined. People could not leave. And this was because of scarlet fever, which could cause fatal rheumatic heart disease at the time. But now we almost never see scarlet fever because we treat strep throat, which is the beginning of scarlet fever, with penicillin because we now have antibiotics. So quarantine is um, normal. It seems abnormal to us, but it's been quite normal in the past. In fact, I found a book. We have a box of books that we're going to give away or sell at Powell's eventually. And I found a series of children's books that I think came from my father. They were first published in 1933 about children, you know, a group of children who have adventures together. And in the first book I picked up, I looked at the chapter headings, and one was quarantine. And so I was reading it last night, and it's this group of children who are delighted because one of them gets mumps. And you have to, they had to, they were out in the country, and, and they had to carry papers with them to return to school. And on the paper, the adults had to fill out, had they had any illnesses during the vacation? Because maybe they couldn't return to school. So this one child, Molly, gets mumps, and the other children are really happy because they've been exposed to her. And they all get a month off of school. A month for mumps. 
we, I mean, we barely see mumps anymore because of the immunization, but it was a very serious illness. It could cause sterility in boys, even when I first came into medicine. Yeah. So we've come to expect a world without serious diseases because of immunizations and sanitation and antibiotics. So quarantine is normal. I remember my uh, sister got a bad earache and the doctor did home visits at that time in the country and uh, country setting. And he looked at my sister's ear. She had a rip-roaring ear infection and he took out a little tiny knife and lanced her eardrums. That was how that was treated. You just cut open the eardrum and pus would pour out and then you would hope the eardrum would heal. Sometimes it didn't and you were left deaf. Sometimes if you didn't, have it lanced, the infection would spread to your mastoid and then spread throughout your body and you would die from an ear infection. We don't have medicine to treat COVID-19. We have very few drugs to treat viruses. So in a way, we're back to what was normal in my sister's, when my sister was sick or before World War II. And we have to be very careful not to throw a bunch of unproven medications at COVID patients because there could be bad side effects, as has happened with antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, and a lot of side effects from different antibiotics, including deafness and so on. So, you know, we're in a hurry to get some medicine for COVID-19, but we can't be in such a big hurry that we cause more damage because we don't know what we're doing. Food shortages, rationing. My father had lived through the Depression. He was born in 1917. And when we went grocery shopping, he always headed straight in the door and for the bin with the day-old bread and the bruised or half-spoiled vegetables and fruits. And that would be the first thing he would buy. And my mother always disliked buckwheat. And I didn't know why until she told me that They had eaten so many buckwheat pancakes when they were first born because they were so poor. They were too poor to buy regular flour, but buckwheat flour was really cheap. And when I was born, there was rationing. So during World War II, these are the things that were rationed. Meat, butter, fat, oil, cheese, and sugar. So you would get a ration book. I remember my parents' ration book. And uh, the ration book had stamps. And you could tear off a stamp when you bought something to prove that you were complying with the rationing. So there are uh, stamps for those things, and those were red stamps. And then there were blue stamps for canned and frozen foods, juice, dried beans, soups, baby food, and ketchup. And the other things that were rationed were clothing, shoes, coffee, gasoline, tires, and fuel oil to heat homes. And if one was, this is a quote, if one was fortunate enough to own an automobile and drive at the then specified speed of 35 miles per hour to save fuel, one might have a small amount of gas remaining at the end of the month to visit nearby relatives. So uh, tires and fuel were for the gas for the car were rationed according to where you worked and how far you had to drive to work. Interestingly, Recycling was born during World War II. 
So there was recycling of metal, paper, and rubber. There were scrap iron drives in all towns where people would collect whatever iron they had to be melted down and used for the war. And there's a poster of movie star Rita Haywood, who was, you know, glamorous, posed on her car. And there was a sign where the bumpers of the car used to be. And the sign said, please drive carefully. My bumpers are on the scrap heap. So her, she'd taken the bumpers off of her, her car to recycle for the war effort. And then there were Victory Gardens, which I mentioned last week. By 1945, there were an estimated 20 million Victory Gardens. So people would till up whatever patch they had and grow vegetables that produced approximately 40% of America's vegetables. 40% of America's vegetables were grown in people's backyards or on vacant lots. And interestingly, the government's persuasion of people to give up large amounts of red meats and fats resulted in more healthy eating. So people became healthier during this time of difficulty, which could happen to us, except the ones who get sick and have lasting consequences or die. The, um, I was telling people that I remember in my childhood, because we didn't have butter, we had oleomargarine, which was kind of like lard, and it was in a plastic pack, and there was a little button in it that was had red dye in it, and you squeezed that button and burst it, and you kneaded the pack of essentially Crisco, and until the coloring spread throughout it, so it would look yellow, so it would look like butter. It did not taste like butter. So during um, rationing, there were black market racketeers, which we have now. Google just took down, I think, 12,900 sites of people who had stolen or um, hoarded supplies like masks and so on, um, and were selling them at 10 times the price or 100 times the price. So there are always people who will try to turn difficulty to their own advantage. And this is, this is so interesting. There were food manufacturers during World War II who took advantage of the wartime shortages to flaunt their patriotism which also meant profit for them. So that blue box of Kraft macaroni and cheese was invented at that time. And it became very popular as a substitute for meat and dairy products. Two boxes required only one rationing coupon, so that was very cheap. So there were 80 million boxes sold in the last two years, in the, la in the year, two years before the war ended. Um, cottage cheese also became very popular as a substitute for meat. So uh, in 1930, there were 110 million pounds sold, and by the end of the war, 500 million pounds so, sold. And rationing actually didn't end until after a year, at least a year after the war ended. Because it's going to take time to go back to something that we could call normal. It's going to take time, and there's no point in rushing it as some people are trying to do, who are getting stir-crazy. Even some people in high places are trying to rush the end of this self-quarantine. As um, Bill Gates, who's now an expert on uh, epidemiology and 
infectious diseases and vaccines because of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that takes care of worldwide health. Um, as Bill Gates said, yeah, okay, if we end early, we can go back to our favorite restaurant and just ignore the pile of bodies in the corner. And in Ecuador, there are literally piles of bodies on the streets. Because when somebody dies at home, people don't know what to do. They can't keep it in the house. So they're just putting them out on the sidewalks. And then hoping that the government or somebody will come and eventually pick them up. And in New York City, for those who don't know, the hospitals now have large refrigerated gigantic trailers outside the hospitals because there's no room for the bodies in the, in the hospital morgue. So the bodies are being put in these refrigerated trucks until they can figure out what to do for the, with them. This is another quote from this article about rationing. While life during the war meant daily sacrifice, few complained because they knew it was the men and women in uniform who were making the greater sacrifice. There was a poster that said, do less so they'll have enough. On the whole, American people were united in their efforts. So currently, our men and women in uniform are the health care providers who are risking their lives and the lives of their children their families, by continuing to work, to care for all of us when we get sick. Epidemics are normal. So I remember that very clearly the morning, we were staying with our grandparents in the Washington, D.C. area, and it was Sunday morning, and we went out to get the newspaper on the, on the step, Sunday paper, and it had a huge headline. And the headline was that Dr. Jonas Salk announced that he developed a vaccine, a successful vaccine, successfully tested against polio. And my mother cried. I remember that so clearly because she was not the type of person to cry. And there were prayers of gratitude for Dr. Salk in every church across the nation that morning. Because for several years, we weren't allowed, we children were not allowed to go to birthday parties or swim in swimming pools because of the fear of catching polio and dying or, or ending up, if we didn't die, with paralyzed legs, leg braces and crutches for life. Or, if we didn't die, lying in a huge respirator called an iron lung for life. So an iron lung was a gigantic metal tube, if you've never seen one or seen a picture of one and people were in this tube. It was the form of a respirator at the time. And only your head stuck out through a rubber gasket. Uh, and the rubber gasket was the seal because what the iron lung did is that it would change pressure, and so your chest would move and move air into your lungs. So there was this constant noise of the change of pressure. Positive pressure, negative pressure, positive pressure, negative pressure. So you saw, if you were in an iron lung, which thousands of people were, you only saw the world through a little mirror. So you're lying on your back with a little mirror here above your head, and you could see people come in to your room in that mirror. And so I think the last person who was in an iron lung died this year, who was essentially spent his life in an iron lung. 
And at the time, we believed that the U.S. had a duty to help other poorer countries. You know, after the horrors of World War II, we reached out with the Peace Corps. We volunteered for the Peace Corps, for AmeriCorps, for VISTA, in order to help where we could. So let us hope that when this ends, there'll be the same transformation here. War is normal, as we know. You know, when we did the Jesus for Peace pilgrimage, I really looked at war and peace, and I thought, uh, okay, and I had, you know, done marches for the civil rights and for the end of the Vietnam War and so on. And, but I really began to contemplate, is there the possibility of the end of war? as long as human beings are alive. And I realized, no. As long as human beings have been alive, they've divided themselves into us and them, and then wanted what them had, what they had, their territory, or their oil, or their diamonds, or their land, whatever, their women, their children for slaves, whatever. You know, as long as human beings have been alive, war has been a reality and there's probably no end to it in samsara. So this is normal war. This is a war of sorts. This is a new kind of war. And we need to unite all around the world to end isolationism, whether from our family members, family members who have been isolated from each other are now connecting, isolation from our near neighbors to inquire about their well-being and what they need, or isolation from other countries around the world. It's ridiculous to think that we can isolate ourselves and protect ourselves with tariffs and walls. Another advantage of universal suffering is it can bring us together. This is universal, and it can bring us together or it can make us angry and then create human enemies. We have a choice. As I've always been interested in the fact that there's a unique feature of natural disasters and pandemics that kill people and overturn their lives. The unique feature is there's no one to blame. So we don't get angry at rainstorms or earthquakes or tsunamis, or hurricanes, or flooded rivers. But soon after they occur, we begin to look for other human beings to blame, right? You see it every time. We don't get angry at nature, but we get angry at human nature. And one of the things that Hogan says is we are part of nature. If we realize we are part of nature, then maybe we wouldn't get so angry. So this is a war against a virus. Viruses are very interesting. They are the most abundant organism on the planet. So they're everywhere, including in our bodies. There are an estimated 38 trillion bacteria in our human body, and we know that most of them are beneficial, and they're in our large intestine, and they're my, our microbiome, and they keep us physically healthy, and they support our immune system and our cardiac health, and they support our mental health. But there are, also, there are 10 times as many viruses in our bodies. There are 380 trillion viruses in our body, in one human body. 
So just as there are friendly bacteria that exist in our intestines and help us digest food, humans also carry friendly viruses that help protect us against dangerous bacteria. So viruses are kind of internal antibiotics in many cases, and they destroy bacteria that could make us seriously ill, including E. coli, dangerous E. coli. So this is like a war, but really there's no one to blame. Viruses can't reproduce without invading a host cell. So in the case of COVID, our cells, specifically our mucous membrane cells, they don't invade through our skin. They invade through the moist pink cells in our nose, mouth, eyes. So they have little, they can attach to those cells specifically, mucous membrane cells. And then they activate, and then they take over the host cell, the energy of the host cell, and the machinery, the tools in the host cell to reproduce themselves, rather than the host cell reproducing itself and keeping itself healthy. So they take that all over and then begin reproducing, in this case, their RNA, their genetic material, tiny bit of genetic material. And there's debate, actually, about whether they're alive or not. So you see articles saying, viruses aren't even alive. But other people say, yeah, they're alive. So we don't actually know where they came from. Because they don't leave a fossil record, because they're just sub-microscopic. We don't know where they came from. And um, it's quite possible that they evolved before any other life forms. We don't know. But it's also quite possible that they might be part of larger organisms that escaped. That escaped and then simplified to become like just, okay, we can reproduce. Just got rid of everything else they didn't need evolutionarily. So they could even be part of ourselves originally, and they've evolved to live in this host. They want to live too. If we call them alive, they want to live too. And actually in our cells, there are bits and pieces that were originally bacteria, parts of bacteria that came into our cells, invaded ourselves, and then just became part of the machinery of our cells that keep us healthy. So we literally are interbeing all the time. We could not exist without, quote, the other trillions and trillions of them. So when I was 13, my uh, family went to Korea after the Korean War. And my father taught there. And it was part of the, the USAID program. So this was part of the program to help other countries recover from war. So we became generous after World War II in helping other countries that were suffering from the effects of war. So I worked in an orphanage with starving children. And the babies in that orphanage, because there were very few people to tend for them, had been left without caretakers in their cribs for so long that they didn't cry. And they were completely passive in your arms when you picked them up. So I, we would, my sisters and I would carry them around to give them some human contact because the workers couldn't do that. They could barely stick a bottle in their mouth and feed them. 
And my parents took in one baby at a time from that orphanage and raised it in our family setting, fattening them up and helping them to become social, able to laugh again, able to interact with human beings again, so they could be adopted by childless Korean couples. Most of the babies were girls. Boys were at high, high premium because Korean people wanted boys to inherit their wealth, their businesses, and so on. But girls were considered a liability to poor parents because they couldn't afford a dowry when that girl grew up and got married. So the missionaries who ran the orphanage would go out every morning, early in the morning, to collect baby girls who had been left on the trash heaps. And that's where most of the kids came from, the babies came from in that orphanage. So that's not so long ago. This is normal that children are being abandoned and bodies are being abandoned. So this is um, from the poet Basho while he was on a pilgrimage in 1684, and probably it's a time of epidemic. This is what he writes in his diary. As I was plodding along the river Fuji, I saw a small child, hardly three years of age, crying pitifully on the bank, obviously abandoned by his parents. They must have thought this child was unable to ride through the stormy waters of life, which run as wild as the rapid river itself and that he was destined to have a life even shorter than that of the morning dew. The child looked as fragile as the flowers of bush clover that scatter at the slightest stir of the autumn wind. And it was so pitiful that I gave him what little food I had with me. This is a poem that Basho wrote. The ancient poet who pitied monkeys for their cries. What would he say if he saw this child crying in the autumn wind. How is it indeed, Basho continues, that this child has been reduced to this state of utter misery? Is it because of his mother who ignored him or because of his father who abandoned him? Or alas, it seems to me that this child's undeserved suffering has been caused by something far greater and more massive, by what one might call the irresistible will of heaven. If it is so, child, you must raise your voice to heaven, and I must pass on, leaving you behind. So this is the kind of situation that healthcare workers are facing now. Who to put on the ventilator and who to leave behind. Who to give comfort care to, as Basho did with this child short-lived comfort care, and who not to give maximum care to. And this is very, very tearing, very, very tearing to the hearts of the healthcare workers. One, I saw a video of one healthcare worker say, saying, I signed up to help people recover from illness or prevent illness. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to play God, is actually what he said. So this is adding to the stress of healthcare workers at this time.
we have to keep a broad adult view at this time. When, when human beings are under stress, we often regress to a earlier level of development, like an angry two-year-old or a resistant, uh, resistant teenager. Um, that's very common. Or getting, looking out for their, your own good rather than taking care of other people. So that's just a normal human tendency to collapse to a, a lower level of human development. And we, we have to keep a broad adult view of what's going on and not be self-concerned. So there's a very funny video online of a, a two-year-old girl and she's collapsed against the front door of her house and she's crying and she's covered with tears and covered with nose goo and she's saying, I want to go out. I want to go out. And her dad says, you want to go out? She says, I want to go out. And then she just starts wailing harder. Yes, we all do want to go out. (laughs) We all want to resume normal life. We want to get out of wherever we're quarantined in now. But we can't collapse into the self-centered view of a toddler. We have to practice forbearance. We have to convert, how can I survive? into how can I serve? We have to convert how can I survive into how can I serve? So one of our um, Sangha members who's I think 86 and used to live at the monastery um, said that she was very inspired by the videos from Italy and Spain where people each night are leaning out of their windows over their balconies going out on their doorsteps and um, chanting or banging pots and pans in appreciation for healthcare workers. And actually the man that I told you about who was so distressed about playing God, and he was breaking down in the interview, the the physician, emergency room physician. When the interviewer asked him, what can we do for you? He said, just a few messages of gratitude mean everything to us and we can go back into the fray. So our Sangha member decided that in Portland at five o'clock at night, she would go out and start singing Shantideva, our Shantideva chant. And she said, even though I have this old kind of wavery old lady voice, I just got out there and I did it. And so people in the Sangha have sent that message around and they're now inspired to go out at five o'clock at night, wherever they are, and sing the Shantideva chant, which includes May I become doctor, nurse, and medicine for sick beings in the world. May food and drink descend, ending thirst and hunger. So it's a beautiful chant for this time. And it's our way of expressing gratitude for the sacrifice that healthcare workers are making. One of our uh, daughters is now um, was sent home from the hospital with suspected COVID and is in quarantine. One of our uh, our daughter-in-law is make, trying to make this very difficult decision. She's in a nursing program which ends in August, but you know they're recruiting people now who aren't finished with medical school or nursing school. But the director of her educational program said, "Please don't work in the hospitals," which she's been doing to earn money to support her family. Please don't work in the hospitals until you finish this program because of course, if she gets sick and really sick, 
then, you know, she could die and leave her family without a mother, or she could um, not be able to finish school. And certainly when she graduates, COVID will still be with us. And so then she'll be out on the front lines, which is her desire. Every healthcare worker's desire is to be out on the front lines, but we can't all do that for various reasons. I, I read that over 12,700 healthcare workers volunteered to go into New York City uh, to help out with the epidemic there. So we're learning that it, uh, that it was a myth that it doesn't affect young people. And one, as one doctor said in the video, he said, tell that to the 29-year-old I intubated this week, or the 20-year-old who died on a respirator in my hospital this week. So how can we help? We can express gratitude. We can do gratitude practice and then sing the Shanti Deva chant to express our gratitude for the healthcare workers. Um, some people are just making signs and planting them, you know, on the lawns of, of hospitals or nursing homes, expressing gratitude for people who go back into the fray day after day, night after night. We can plan a bigger garden to share, to share with people because there may be food shortages. We don't know. We can plant, we can plant flowers to lift people's spirits. We can sing or bang pots to thank healthcare workers at night. We can make masks and share them. We can donate if we have elastic or if we have M95 masks in reserve. We can donate them to healthcare workers. One of my friends in Connecticut, and the, the pandemic in New York is advancing rapidly towards Connecticut. She and her partner are sewing masks. And she discovered that a woman just down the street for, from her is a young nurse with young children and has to go back in every night and risk her life and the lives of her family. Uh, and the N95 masks, they're now trying to protect them because you can't discard them. You have to use them for days or weeks on end. So they're protecting them with cloth masks. So my friend in Connecticut made a cloth mask and took it several doors down and just left it on the front step uh, for that nurse to use to protect the N95 masks from contamination, from uh, droplets or worse. So healthcare workers who can't go onto the front line are doing things like um, uh, volunteering for an, an advice line for people who are terrified because the advice lines, you, you know how it is, you get a little, do I have a sore throat, do I have a fever? And people are calling the advice line, so they're overwhelmed. So she's doing that. Um, I just, people are still working with different charities. I just, I'm interested in this because I used to live in Africa. But the Maasai people in Africa are starving. And so they, they asked for donations of $9 for, to help the Maasai not starve because they're, they're the conservators of large um, wildlife refuges in Africa, which will collapse and be poached if the Maasai aren't there guarding them. Syrian refugees are in terrible shape. I heard this morning there are 20,000 re Syrian refugees in one camp that was designed for 3,000. And so it's, 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 an, it's a Muslim charity you know, that I donated to because 
there's ways we can help even with a few dollars. I am so proud of Oregon. I'm so proud of Oregon because our president has had the governors of states bidding against each other and bidding against FEMA to get the highest price for ventilators that are supposed to be passed out by the federal government as needed. And Oregon, we have only 749 respirators. And our governor sent 140 of those to New York City yesterday, saying, we don't need them now, and you need them now, and we will support you however we can. And China got donations from the billionaires who founded the site Alibaba, which you may have encountered, sells a lot of stuff. Um, and, those, and they bought 1,000 ventilators in China with those, and they're sending those to New York City. New York City is projected to need 30,000 ventilators. So as the epidemic wanes there, they will send ventilators to us if we need more than, well, we now have 600 ventilators in Oregon, which we probably will. These are the times that reveal who we are and where we need to do our spiritual work. We can reflect on what did our teachers, what did our parents teach us? I'm just so grateful for what my parents taught me by taking me abroad and through their generosity. What did our parents teach us? To be broad-minded and generous and hopeful or to be self-centered and fearful? Where do we need to work? Where do we need to work on what we were given to improve it? So I had an example this week because we're making masks here. We have a small army of people cutting and folding and sewing straps because we need four straps for every mask and then people sewing masks. So I went into town and gave masks to our um, ladies at the post office. And then on an impulse, I went over to the pharmacy and asked if they would like masks and they snatched them up very quickly because they're caring for sick people all day long. And then I had a few uh, left in my hands and one woman uh, stopped me as I was leaving the store and said, could I have a mask for my, uh, myself and my daughter? And I said, sure. And then there weren't two more. And then I was carrying a few in my hands we had some we were going to give to our, the nursing home in town, the Amber. And another woman came up to the parking lot and said, are you selling those? And I said, no, we're giving them away. And she said, oh, because I wanted one for my husband. And my reaction was to pull back and say, no, we're taking these to the nursing home. But, you know, I don't have a very strong inner critic, but my inner critic could not let go of that incident. It just kept coming up in my mind over and over again. Why didn't you just give that woman a mask for her husband? And so I really tried to examine it. This is, what, this is a time to really examine what's going on in our heart mind. And because it kept coming up, I knew I've got to examine it. And so I looked at it carefully, and I realized that I don't do well with sudden surprises, especially requests to give something away. And so I realized I don't do well with that. And I realized I'm going to practice, instead of this, this. 
um, instead of withdrawal, when there's a surprise or something's changing rapidly, I'm going to practice with here. To be curious, like I could have asked her, what's happening with your husband? Do you, do you sew? I did tell her, if you sew, you can find patterns online, but I didn't ask her, do you sew? And maybe she doesn't. And she does need a mask for her husband. And maybe he's immune compromised. I don't know, because my reaction was this instead of this. Instead of curiosity about what her predicament was, what her form of suffering was, and generosity. So this is, this is the way I characterize this practice now for me. Detecting this and doing this. Curiosity and generosity. So I'm really practicing hard with that. And each of us has something to practice with. Or more than one thing to practice with, but one thing at a time, maybe. Could be anger. Any kind of reactivity. And reactivity is likely to come up in this time of self-quarantine. You know, people are through the first week of, oh, this is really fun, uh, to being cranky and irritable about the restriction and wanting to get out. Well, we can't get out yet. So I'll save something else interesting for next week. (laughs) Um, You know, all around us now, the most wonderful thing is that spring is happening. Just inexorable, the seasons change. No matter what's happening to human beings, other organisms are flourishing. So how can we flourish? We can flourish by making masks. So um, we make a couple kinds of masks. And this mask, I was... little concerned about because of the connotations of rainbows. And um, in Klaska and I, that might cause some problems. Um, When we first came to the monastery, uh, there was a public meeting where somebody challenged us and asked if we had a homosexual agenda because they had read that there was a gay and lesbian retreat up at another retreat center in Washington. And Hogan said very beautifully, because he was emceeing the meeting, and he's better at those sudden surprises than I am. He said, oh, well, we, like, of course, all your churches, don't ask when someone comes in the door. We just welcome them. So I decided that on these masks, because there might be, I don't know, some reactivity to a rainbow theme, I wrote on the mask, after every storm, the sun comes out again and rainbows appear. So, the, and, and this is important because in Italy, which is in, in terrible shape still, terrible shape, like I think 800 deaths a day now. Spain, 1,000 deaths a day. Um, the, what they've encouraged the children who are in quarantine to do is to make a banner with a rainbow on it and hang it out, out their balcony so everybody can see it. Excuse me. So they're actually, if you do have to go out for groceries, there are guides to the street you should walk down to see all the rainbow banners that the children have made and hung out. So I wanted to convert this into a rainbow banner, these masks. Because there will be an end, and we have to hold on to the fact that there will be an end, and there will be profound changes which could be very positive. Hope. Hope sustains us for a 
positive end, even though there will be bodies piled up and people that we love will be gone. So we have to be prepared for death, which could be ours or could be those of, our, of the people we love. We have to make or update wills if we don't have them. Now the healthcare professionals in their 30s are making wills. Something you don't usually do until you're older and see death approaching. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have to sustain ourselves with spiritual practice. And I'm so glad that so many people are coming back to a sangha to practice with a sangha at this time. Also, one of the things that hospice workers say is the saddest thing when somebody dies is if they die with regrets, with unfinished business. So please take an inventory of your heart-mind, and if there are things that need to be taken care of that would be regrets for you, this is the time to think about how to do that. So there are many things that we can do during this time to sustain us and sustain others who are working hard to keep us safe. So how about we end with the Shantideva chant? And this is on our website. You can find it on the website so you can chant with us. Um, and chant at home or chant at 5 o'clock with everyone else in the, in the ZCO Sangha. And maybe other Sanghas will like the chant and pick it up.
Jesus, Jesus.